If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. It's where we'll be this morning. 1 Corinthians 13. We'll actually be through the entirety of that chapter, uh, verses 1 through 13. We'll be reading it, working through it, uh, as it relates to uh, what we do as the church. So if you would, if you found your spot, would you please stand for the reading of Christ's Word this morning. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 13. May you hear the Word of Christ this morning. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but not have love... I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but not have love, I am nothing. If I, have away all, if I give away all that I have and I deliver my body up to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part... And we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith Hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy that we can gather as your people of the word. And may you now open up our hearts and our minds and our ears so that we might receive this word. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would speak so clearly and audibly to us this morning. We realize and we understand and we affirm that you are a God who speaks and you are not silent. You are not silent. And so in this time, may you speak to your people so that we might go and live out your word. And in the fullness of it, we offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may have a seat. This is uh, our fourth week dealing with the topic of small things. We're looking at all the small things uh, as it relates to uh, being faithful in the small things as we looked really in the first week of January and it set sort of a, a goal and trajectory for us in 2019 as Hickory Grove as a church. And so we've looked at each month small things and we are still uh, surrendering to this understanding in March as a whole what it means to be planted in the church. That's the small thing for March. And if I could throw something out to you uh, this morning, it is this. If you missed last week's message about whose we are, our identity in Christ, but also how we measure ourselves in relation to Christ, this message this morning fits on the foundation that we laid last week. 
because I'm convinced that the scriptures teach this, that we cannot understand who we are, excuse me, excuse me, we cannot understand what we are supposed to do, how we are supposed to go into the world and to live out this message of goodness and hope without first understanding whose we are. Our identity gives us a trajectory and a path of what we are to do. Does that make sense? We must be in Christ before we do the things of Christ. So these two messages are meant to connect. And in fact, I'm going to build even more next week and connect all three as a whole. So this morning, we are looking at what it means uh, for us as the church to do. We already know what we are to be and whose we are, but this week, what are we to do? Uh, about 10 years ago, one of uh, the main major research think tanks Barna Research did a study, and in fact, they released a study in a book called Unchristian. They asked a number of pastors, uh, laypersons, but they also took time to ask uh, outsiders, the unchurched, about what they think the church is and what the church does. And here are nearly every one of the chapter title reflections where the authors broke down even more of what outsiders, what the unchurched thought about what the church is and what it does. Here's what they said. The church, well, they say one thing, but live something entirely different. The church is insincere and concerned only with converting others. The church shows contempt for those of different sexual orientations. The church is boring. It is unintelligent, old-fashioned, and out of touch with reality. The church is primarily motivated by political agendas and promotes right-wing politics. The church is prideful and quick to find fault in others. Hopefully that is a heavy weight for us this morning. I was using that in order to hook of our attention to understand this is how we are perceived, church, across America. Now you might say, well, that's certainly not who we are. There might be a bit of truth in some of these. There are times when we can probably be pretty insincere. Truth be told, right? There are probably plenty of times where people seemingly think of us as just filled with uh, political agendas because that's what they see on some media services or here on the radio. They might get those little bits of truth but think that's of everything of who we are. But again, those are perceptions. Perceptions of what the church is and what it does. And these were taken from thousands of interviews. Telephone interviews, online interviews, person-to-person interviews. And the perceptions of the church, really, it came down to what we do. You see each of those of how the church acts. Look at it again. The church says one thing but does another. The church is insincere. That's an action. They're concerned only with converting. That's an action. They're boring, unintelligent, old-fashioned. It's is relating to what they do, and there's an adjectives related to what they do. Church is motivated by political agendas. The church is prideful. Those are all actions that are seemingly trying to understand our identity as the church. So, the rest of the sermon is really hoping 
And I pray that it is giving a response for what we do, what we truly do. We know who we are. That's last week's message. But what do we do? What do we really do? And two things I really think fits under a big umbrella of what the church does. One, we gather here on Sundays, but we also scatter. Keep those two words in your head because that's going to keep coming back to again and again. We gather and we scatter. Let's look at the first, gather. We gather to exalt Christ. That is why we're even here. We're here to raise His name because of what He has done on our behalf. As PJ just laid out so perfectly in, in, in a, just a water bottle, this is what we do. We are a people that are broken, but we come here to express and show and display that we are broken and we need a perfect Savior and the one who has taken on our own sin, who has taken on our brokenness. So we do this, we exalt Christ in faith, in hope, and because of love itself. This love has been displayed to us, and we come and give thanks with our worship because of this love. We come together as whole persons. We didn't come in as just heads this morning. We didn't come in as just hearts this morning. We didn't come in with just bodies or hands. We came in as full, whole persons. We came in as hearts, heads, and hands. And so when we come here, when we gather, we come to have our hearts retuned in faith. We also come here to have our heads reminded of the hope we have ultimately in Christ is that no matter what we uh, give our lives over to throughout the week, we might hope in many things, but ultimately our greatest hope is in the person of Christ Himself. And lastly, we came to have our hands recalibrated to love well. Recalibrated to love well. And so, if you're anything like me with the weak that has happened from Monday through Saturday. It's been busy, hasn't it? Lots of business happens from Monday to Saturday. And it is so easy, if I can confess this, it is so easy to have my heart completely stripped out of tune. I can forget the hope that I have. My head forgets about the hope that I have in Christ. My heart gets completely out of tune with the promises that I have in Christ. And lastly, my hands get out of balance. I do lots of things with my hands and with my body. And oftentimes they aren't actually bent towards loving Christ. And so when we come here, we hope, I hope we come here to have our hearts retuned, our heads reminded, and also our hands recalibrated. And so once it comes to this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, we often hear it in the context of what? Wedding ceremonies, don't we? Love is patient, love is kind. And you have these two individuals looking at one another, maybe even reciting these verses, or the pastor, the minister recites these verses as the ceremony goes on. The thing is, though, with 1 Corinthians 13, it's set in the middle of a conversation about worship. It's set right in the middle. If you look at 1 Corinthians 12, it's about spiritual gifts and about the unity of the body as it relates to worship. 
If you look at 1 Corinthians 14, it's dealing with how to prophesy in the context of worship, how tongues are meant to be used in the context of worship, as well as orderly worship in the latter part of 1 Corinthians 14. It is smack right in the middle of a conversation about how we worship. And so when I look at 1 Corinthians 13, sometimes we bring those rumblings of weddings into it, but it is really about worship. Because what we do in worship and the, the hymn singing, the sermon and the like, we're doing something towards Christ. But I am convinced, and this is what I love to read about and to talk about, is that something happens in worship to us as well. Hopefully we don't come here thinking that it's just empty songs that are sung or a sermon that's preached or the Lord's Supper that's taken, that it's just things we do. I'm convinced that all of these activities that take place in the context of worship, they shape us into a certain type of people. And so when I think of hymns, for example, we are invited by hymns every single week to give our hearts to the one whom they long for. That's what a hymn does. It's meant to invoke and provoke your heart to sing to the one that your heart was meant to celebrate. Or if you look at confession, the time where we pray to God about the things that are so concerning on our hearts, confession, well, it prompts us to lament over our own brokenness, our own sinful choices and desires. That's that time where we stop to pray and to actually confess, Jesus, I'm not worthy, but yet you have invited me here to worship you. Or when we fellowship, you know, that five minutes that we take to greet one another, to hug, show, uh, hug necks and to embrace one another. That was created in the context of worship in order to demonstrate this simple fact. Because Christ has first embraced you you can embrace a brother and sister in Christ. That's why it is even created in many contexts of worship. That fellowship is to take something so profound and make it concrete that you can embrace somebody because you have first been embraced as well. Or if you look at the sermon, Lord willing, it, I can communicate this every single week, that it provokes our hearts to respond to God's will, His purpose, and His mission. But also, hopefully, the sermon itself, it takes root into our heads to remember His mercy and kindness on our behalf. And lastly, the sermon is, Lord willing, taking our hands and readying them to serve and to sacrifice for the Monday through Saturday that we're about to journey into. And then lastly, the Lord's Supper itself, I think this is how the Lord's Supper shapes us, that it pleads for the church to honor the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf to humbly receive His grace in and through the bread and the cup and to wait in hopeful expectation that we'll one day feast with Him in heaven. It is profound that the things that we do in worship, I am convinced, shape us week in and week out to be a certain type of people, a people that are responding to the grace mercy and kindness of Christ. So when we do these things, when we're gathered, the Spirit meets with us. He meets right here in the midst of us to train us in the ways of Christ, to feed us with Christ, and to mature us in the knowledge and likeness of Christ. 
And so when we gather, this is happening. Whether we see it or not, it is happening to us, church, every single Sunday. And so that's what we do when we gather. That's what the church does when we gather in faith, hope, and love. But what happens when we scatter? That's gathering, now scattering. What does our faith look like when we scatter into our daily lives? That Monday through Saturday, mundane activities that happen in our homes, on the streets, wherever it is, our neighborhoods and the like. What does this look like? Well, first, Lord willing, our worship on Sunday, it actually spills over. The gathering here spills over into our scattering. That the hymns that we sing the sermon that we hear, the Lord's Supper that we just partook of, it spills over. And so when we come here, we're not just being filled to the brim. We're overflowing with the things of Christ. And so when we leave this place, we go and we start feeling other people because there's not enough to be contained inside us. And so it has to spill over into our scattering into the world. Next, look at verse 13 of the very last verse of uh, 1 Corinthians 13. This is sort of the height of his argument. Now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Well, why is that? Because God is love. He has embraced us with a love that we have to continue going and telling people about that type of embrace. And so love is the very foundation of faith and hope for Paul. It is the foundation that motivates Christian love because it has experienced the love of Christ first. And then, as we were talking about in our Sunday school class this morning, we don't love people as, uh, as an act of reciprocity, as a returning of something. We love because we have first been loved. Our neighbor did something kind for us. We don't do it just because. We do it because we have met with the person of Christ himself. And we cannot help but extend that love. One uh, scholar writes about Paul's use of the word agape here. Agape meaning sacrificial love. Paul's use of agape here is rooted in the notion of, catch this church, care, regard, and respect for the other and the well-being of somebody else. So that love that we have first been embraced with, we extend that type of agape love to care and regard and respect someone else as we have first been embraced. So when we demonstrate the love of Christ in our scattered living, we are seeing, and hopefully others are witnessing, we are seeing the maturing and blossoming of our faith in Him and the hope of things to come. We cannot separate love, faith, and hope. We cannot. Yet ultimately, love is the foundation of both of those. And so when you look at verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes this, And if you have faith so as to move mountains but not have love, I am nothing. Because he understood that faith and love have to be interwoven together. And next, when, he looks at ver when you look at verse 3, he writes this, And if I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but not have love, I have gained nothing. So for Paul, not only is love connected to faith, but love is also connected to hope. Because love is what is pushing into those things. 
And so when people see us day in and day out, Lord willing, that they are seeing that that love is spilling into our lives and it comes into concrete forms of our faith and our hope in Christ. We are going into that world extending that love, faith, and hope and they begin watching and seeing what are these people about? What is it that they're doing? And I would reply in our scattered living, we're living out the love of Christ. We're living out our faith in Him. And we're living out our hope ultimately found in Him. So here's some applications I see for verses 1 through 7, at least for the meat of this message, uh, of, of these verses for 1 Corinthians 13. We cannot let our love be full of noise. You make sense when I say that? If you look at verse 1, Paul says, If I speak in tongues of men and angels but not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Our love cannot be just filled with noise and clatter because otherwise it's just empty. There's no substance to it at all. Next, we cannot have mixed motivations behind our love. We don't love people in order to get something from them. That's not love. That's just using somebody to get some other end that we have in mind. We're using them for some other purpose of our own intentions. Third, here's a tough one, church. The virtue of waiting patiently. I cannot tell you how many times where I have tried my best, where friends have come to me and they have had incredible questions about what it means to follow Christ, yet they cannot grasp it. They cannot submit to it and they cannot pull their lives into the orbit of Christ. But you know what we have to do? Wait patiently. There's a reason that person continues to come to you again and again and again and again and again and again. Because one, they trust you, but two, that they continue to see the love, hope, and faith that you live out every single day. And it's okay to not be able to answer all the questions that they have. But at the same time, it is so difficult to wait patiently for the Lord's timing, not ours. Fourth, Kindness is generated from love. Think of all those kind things that you do to your neighbors, for your friends, or your family. Paul is saying here in verses 4 through 7 that it is generated. Its very source comes from Christ Himself and the love that we have first experienced through Him that we are able to extend such kind acts. And fifth, Contamination by love, uh, of love by envy, self-importance, and self-interest. We cannot let envy, self-importance, and self-interest contaminate agape love. Because those are contradiction in terms anyways. If agape love is by definition a sacrificial act done on behalf of somebody else, it cannot be self-importance and self-interest that's in there. That's a contradiction. You can't have those. As a mentor of mine preached this past week, he talked about jealousy and envy. Jealousy is wanting something for yourself that's rightfully yours. Wanting something for yourself that's rightfully yours. You can be jealous for those things. Well, envy is different. It is wanting something for yourself that's rightfully someone else's. 
See if I can put a little meat to this as he used it. You can be jealous for your wife or for your husband. He is mine, she is mine, and they're rightfully yours. But when you envy somebody else's wife, somebody else's husband, you are saying that that's somebody else's and I want it. That's envy. That's a contradiction for sacrificial love as we have experienced in the person and work of Christ. And so when we look at these, love is, does not equal to envy. It doesn't seek the well-being of somebody else. Or love does not equal to self-importance or self-interest because agape love is always outward and other-focused throughout its showings and its doings and its displaying before others. So let's look back where we started of these perceptions of the church. The church says one thing but lives something else entirely different. The church is insincere and concerned only with converting others. The church shows contempt for those of other sexual orientations. The church is boring, unintelligent, old-fashioned, and out of touch with reality. The church is primarily motivated by political agendas and right-wing politics. The church is prideful and quick to find faults in others. Church, if we gather in faith, hope, and love, I think... Others will see that this is who we are, but also what we do. They will no longer become perceptions, but truly an understanding of this is who this people is. Which means also that we need to scatter in faith, hope, and love. To demonstrate the work of Christ in our own scatterings. Whatever it is that we're going through for that week, whatever we're doing for that week, that we are scattering. Think of like we're just leaving traces of Christ all around. And you know the easiest way to overcome perceptions is to get near to people, to draw close. As I was working through this sermon and thinking about perceptions of the church and the perceptions of of people that I've had over the years. I thought a couple, a couple of friends where when I first met them, I had perceptions of who they were. I didn't really know them. They were an acquaintance of some sort. But then we got closer. Relationships started to bond and meld together. And quickly those perceptions were completely cast away because the perceptions I first had were wrong. It is only through drawing close to someone and others that you can really cast away those perceptions. So we must overcome perceptions of what we do by drawing near and displaying the faith, hope, and love of Christ. That's how we overcome these perceptions. And so I want to close this morning with an illustration and also a story that... um, Probably the most foundational book that I read in 2018. Blake and I both read it together. And this is one of those books that I would throw in front of every single one of you. It's by a lady named Rosario Butterfield. It is The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And what you find here in her story, and I'm going to really pick up on it in 1997 in Syracuse, New York. I'll give you a background of who she is and also who she became over the years. 
as an out lesbian feminist, a leader in the LGBTQ rights, the recent co-author of the first domestic partnership policy at Syracuse University, and a soon-to-be tenured radical, my heart's desire was not to become friends with the enemy. Christians seem like small-minded, uncharitable, immoral bunch. Sounds like the perceptions we've read. They ate meat, believed in corporal punishment, violated human and environmental rights at a fevered pitch, denied a woman's right to choose, and believed the whole world should fall under the totalitarian obedience to the, God, uh, to the Bible. An ancient book fraught with racism, sexism, and homophobia. Then she goes on to say that she goes and interviews these two individuals. She's sitting in her truck in the driveway of this Christian home, musing about the book I'm writing about the religious right and their policies, practices, and narratives of hatred of people like me. I believe that only a wacko or an idiot would believe that an ancient book was more relevant and real than the kindness, charity, good practices, open-mindedness, and personal experience reflected in my own lesbian community. The nice Christians who invited me to dinner intrigued me. The pastor, Ken Smith, wrote to me regarding an op-ed I had published in the Syracuse Post-Standard. In it, I opposed the Christian men's movement, Promise Keepers, for their backward and misogynist gender politics and that their threat was against democracy. And here's what happens when she sits down with this husband and wife. Nothing about that night unfolded according to my confidence script. Nothing happened in the way I expected, not that night or the years after or the hundreds of meals of long nights, a psalm singing and prayer as other believers from church, churches and university walked through the door of this house as if there was no door on it. Nothing prepared me for this openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. The Christian home became my two-year refuge and my way station. Long before I ever walked through the doors of the church, the Smith home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible, with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is and eventually came face to face with him on the glittering knife's edge of my own sexual sin. This Christian home was where I wrestled with my own identity. Church, there will be many, many people that will not step foot in this church until you invite them into your homes. In order to overcome perceptions about who the church is and what we do, we have to be willing to open up ourselves to neighboring, to opening ourselves up to a people who will not understand what the gospel is until we display it and we display it in faith and in hope and in love let's pray father we thank you for your guidance we thank you for planning us in this particular church how difficult it is to really understand the depths of the gospel but as rosario butterfield just showed to us is that it takes just a couple of people. 
where we open ourselves to others and others open themselves to us and we are able to just love people and value them for who they are and that is to be made in the image and likeness of God. And so may we show that tender care and that respect to others because as Paul reminds us that we were shown an amazing amount of grace yet while we were still sinners. And so may we this week be a people of faith, hope, and love. But as Paul says, none of these is greater than love. An agape love, a sacrificial love, where we demonstrate that our lives are second. That we put ourselves last. And so may we do that this week. May we present and display the good news of your crucifixion and resurrection through our own lives. And as Paul again says in 2 Corinthians, may we carry around in our bodies the death and the life of Christ. And so, Lord, in a minute, may we scatter from this place to demonstrate that faith, hope, and love. We offer these things in the name of Christ. Amen.